0: Welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts, this episode is kindly supported by Pharmac. I'm Dr Louise Kugler, and today I have the pleasure of talking to Nikki Perkins about vaginal discharge. Nikki is a specialist in sexual health medicine, practising publicly at Auckland District Health Board and privately at Omnicare Women's Health Clinic in Remuera. Nikki is actively involved in teaching and research. She is interested in chronic, genital and sexual pain, vulvo, vaginal disease and genital dermatology. Nikki practices from a whole body perspective and has completed postgraduate training in mind body medicine. Welcome, Nikki. Thank you. So, today we're discussing vaginal discharge and bacterial vaginosis, appropriate testing and prescribing. Our first consult of the morning is a woman who presents with a vaginal discharge. What do we need to consider and offer her in terms of examination and testing, Nikki?
1: Okay, so I thought we should start um, talking about what normal vaginal discharge is because I think it's important to have an understanding of that before we look at what is abnormal. So normal vaginal discharge basically consists of cervical mucus, vaginal transudate, vaginal epithelial cells, bacteria, fungi, whatever else is in the vagina and it's uh, basically a sort of self-cleaning system. There's a cyclical variation obviously with the menstrual cycle in terms of hormonal uh, fluctuation and the discharge is also influenced by hormonal contraception, the cervical ectropion, semen, douching, uh, whatever medicines or applications people are using in the vagina. The pH should be around 4 to 4.5. And the, majority, the vast majority of the organisms that live in the vagina should be lactobacilli, about 96%. After that, there are very small numbers of multiple other types of bacteria, including coagulase negative staphs, viridans, streps, group B streps, enterococci, anaerobes, Gardnerella vaginalis, mycoplasma hominis, ureoplasma, and quite commonly candida albicans. So in a woman who's presenting with a vaginal discharge that she thinks is abnormal, we need to ask her some questions about what she's experiencing. And the specific questions that we ask about vaginal discharge are about the volume of the discharge, whether it's constant or intermittent, what color is it, does it have an odor, is it associated with other symptoms, for example skin symptoms of itching, soreness, pelvic symptoms, urinary symptoms. We ask also about whether there are contact of a sexually transmitted infection. We ask about Uh, other symptoms, including pelvic pain. And we also talk to them about their sexual history and their general history, including illnesses, medications, uh, especially, for example, recent antibiotic use. Once we have a history and an idea of what their complaint specifically is, we're going to do an examination. And I think it's very important for women who are actually symptomatic of an abnormal vaginal discharge that they actually get examined. We want to look at the vulval and the perianal skin. I think it's very important not to hurry past the external genitalia to the vagina and the cervix because there's often very important things that you can note on the external genitalia. Once you have examined the vulva and the perianal skin, then you're gonna do a speculum examination to look at the vagina, look at the discharge, look at the cervix. It's very hard to distinguish between what is vaginal and what is cervical discharge and what is a mixture, obviously, when you see it at the vaginal introitus. But if there's a significant cervical component, for example, from cervicitis, from, for example, an infection like chlamydia, you should be able to see that when you do a speculum examination because you're going to see an inflamed cervix and you're going to see mucoparent discharge coming out of the cervical os. You may also see uh, vaginal discharge on the walls of the vagina once you've done your examination, you're going to do your testing and you're going to perform a sexually transmitted infection screen. So that's basically a vulvo-vaginal swab for chlamydia, gonorrhea, trichomonas. It's important to note that you have to ask for trichomonas, um, certainly in Auckland for the community labs, because they won't perform it unless you put some clinical details down to have that test done. You're also gonna do a transwab, swab, uh, a high vaginal swab for a gram stain and culture. And that is gonna, the gram stain is gonna tell you about bacterial vaginosis, whether it's there or not, and the culture is going to be for yeast. I would normally offer patients as well, serology as part of their STI screen. In terms of treatment, the treatment depends partially on the results, but partially also on what your clinical findings are. So we tend to, in sexual health we tend to make a provisional diagnosis on the day if we can, and we do the appropriate testing. If there's nothing really obvious on the day you examine the patient, you might decide to wait for your results. But for example, if you examine your patient, you think they've definitely got bacterial vaginosis, then you're going to institute treatment even before you get your test results back.
0: So Nikki, you've mentioned serology. When should we be offering full sexual health testing? And What does that look like?
1: Okay, so there are lots of situations in which we should be offering full sexual health testing. Certainly in people who are under the age of 30 who are sexually active, I think that we should be routinely offering STI screening regardless of whether they're symptomatic or not. And this is because that age group is the age group that's at the highest risk of having a sexually transmitted infection diagnosed. In terms of what a routine uh, sexual health check involves, It basically involves what we've just been discussing, and I'm going to move on to that in a minute, plus serology. And I do think it's important to include serology routinely for HIV and syphilis because we are trying to normalise this as part of routine screening rather than relying on a risk-based assessment of whether somebody needs that or not. So certainly in young people under 30, people obviously who are sexual contacts of somebody with a sexually transmitted infection, people who are having multiple sexual contacts regardless of their age, Patients who are attending for a contraception or smear visit, but that, I think, is uh, only if if they're sexually active with, for example, multiple partners. I think at one point there was a, a tendency to just test everyone for chlamydia and gonorrhea, even if they were 45 and had the same partner for 20 years and they were having their smear. And we're sort of trying to move away from that random testing now to being a bit more specific about it. We definitely recommend uh, STI screening in antenatal situations, certainly before a termination of pregnancy or an IUCD insertion, if someone has symptoms, if they've had a non-consecting sexual encounter, Uh, and also people are asking for a sexual health check. And I think that's uh, quite important that regardless of what they're actually telling you about their risk, which might actually appear to be low, if they're asking for one, they've got a reason, and we should just do it for them. So in terms of a routine sexual health check for women, if they're symptomatic, you're going to do what we just did for the patient with bacterial vaginosis. So you're going to do a full examination. You're going to do the vulvovaginal swab for chlamydia, gonorrhea, and trichomonas. And at this point, I would point out that I normally do the swab before I do the speculum examination. So I do my vulval examination, perianal skin. Then I do my vulvovaginal swab. So I insert the swab into the vagina. I pull it out and I make sure that I sweep it over the introitus and the periurethral area on the way out or you can do it on the way in. Uh, It doesn't matter which but basically you want some contamination from the vulva and from the periurethral area so you maximise your sensitivity of the test. That is the best performing test basically. So once you've done that then you're going to do your speculum examination and take your high vaginal swab. If the woman's Symptomatic, you're also going to be offering them HIV and syphilis testing routinely. Uh, And that, as I said before, is because we we can't really rely on risk-based assessment in order to pick up everybody who has HIV infection or who has syphilis. In terms of other serological tests, we basically only do hepatitis C testing if there are risk factors involved and hepatitis B if if the person hasn't been vaccinated or they're in a high-risk ethnicity group. So in terms of um, patients who we would normally test for Hepatitis B, if they haven't grown up in New Zealand and we don't know if they've had a vaccination then we would test them. Also if they're um, Pacific Island, Maori ethnicity, we would test them as well. Um, Patients from other countries, for example India or Fiji, we tend to test them also. In terms of women who are asymptomatic, or who are just having an opportunistic test. I think it's really important to normalise sexually transmitted infection testing in general practice because I know it's a very time-pressured environment and we want to make it easy for people to do this. So if someone's not talking to you about symptoms or you've asked them and they're asymptomatic, it's very easy for them to go and do a swab uh, and for you to give them a blood form. You don't have to take full sexual history um, and get into lots of detail If you ascertain that they've got no symptoms but they've been sexually active and you offer them a test then I think that is the time to get them to go and do a self taken swab and it's very effective and efficient. And that's part of the kind of under 30 thing where you want to slot that into appointments that are not specifically about sexual health or reproductive health. Mm. But I think it's good to normalise that offer of testing and to say look I I offer all my patients of this age sexually transmitted infection testing. Um, People often don't have any symptoms, blah, blah, blah. Just make it kind of easy and normal so that they don't feel that you've singled them out as a person who might be at risk. Uh, And that's a a very good way of getting some opportunistic testing done. So that effectively is the role of self taken swabs. Uh, And the great thing about that is you don't need the clinician to be involved. It also means that you can test in all sorts of different venues. For example, at the Auckland Sexual Health Service, we go to the Big Gay Out. We sometimes go to university orientation. We just have some portaloos and we have a stall and people can go and um, do their urine sample or take their vaginal swab. And so you can actually really expand your opportunities for testing in the population. The cons are that you don't get an examination, um, but there's been some good research basically indicating that people who, who actually say that they're asymptomatic, usually you're not going to miss anything major if you don't do an examination. So it is it is definitely a valid thing to do and it's very acceptable for people.
0: We are thinking this woman we saw earlier in our first consult has bacterial vaginosis. What are the clues to the diagnosis? When do we offer treatment and what treatment do we offer?
1: So firstly, let's look at the clues to the diagnosis. This person is complaining of vaginal discharge, which is fishy smelling, and that is the classic presentation for bacterial vaginosis. When you examine the patient, you're probably going to see whitey, gray, adherent discharge to the vaginal wall, which is fairly homogeneous. Sometimes it can even be a bit frothy, uh, and you probably will notice the smell when you're examining the patient. You may not always, and we don't do the whiff test anymore, which is kind of an old fashioned test where you drop a, a drop of KOH on the speculum and sniff it. Mm. Uh, we don't do that anymore, but often there's an indication when you examine them that that is what they have. If you've got access to pH strips, you can do a pH test at the bedside, uh, which will show a higher pH than should be apparent up in the region of five or five to six. Um, but this is only something that certain people have access to and also it is invalidated by of sexual activity or menstruation so it can be a little bit difficult to interpret. Okay so those are your clues you're going to do your test that we've discussed you're eventually going to get your gram stain back but uh, in the meantime you're probably going to offer this person some treatment and uh, the treatment that we use for bacterial vaginosis in New Zealand is usually metronidazole 400 milligrams twice daily for seven days. That is kind of standard first-line treatment. Originally, um, several years ago, first-line treatment was 2 grams STAT, um, which is still an option, and I still use that quite a lot for people who don't want to take a whole week or have a party to go to or you just don't think they're going to be compliant with a week is certainly a valid option, but it's slightly less uh, efficacious in terms of being BV free at four weeks after treatment. So those two are your main options. We don't at this stage treat sexual partners routinely. We treat with that medication and we don't arrange follow up or test of cure. The person is advised to come back if they feel that their symptoms haven't resolved or if they feel that their symptoms have recurred. And this is something that brings us on to recurrent BV which is actually a really distressing and difficult problem to deal with and I'm sure that all the general practitioners have seen a lot of it in the past. There's a paucity of really good knowledge about bacterial vaginosis and specifically about recurrent bacterial vaginosis. We really do not know why it happens. We do not exactly know why um, BV happens in the first place in terms of Uh, what exactly triggers the whole upset to the vaginal environment where the lactobacilli reduce in numbers and the other bacteria grow and you have the situation on the gram stain where you don't see any lactobacilli at all but you see lots and lots of mixed bacteria. There is still a lot of research going on about BV and BV treatment but at the moment nobody has the answer. Certainly for a pe- quite a long period of time, men were felt not to be important in this equation, but this is now this attitude is now changing. We now realize that the original studies which looked at treatment of male partners and the impact that that might have on recurrent uh, BV for women, were not performed very well. There were lots of flaws in the study design. so the ultimate findings that treatment of the male partner made no difference to recurrence for the female. Uh, is actually possibly not true. And there's some ongoing research now looking at the role of of men in recurrent BV. And so we're kind of in the process of revising our ideas about BV and whether it possibly is a sexually transmitted infection or not because currently it's not uh, supposed to be sexually transmitted. We don't call it that to our patients. We don't do contact tracing. But actually the most significant risk factor for BV is a new sexual contact Uh, And I've certainly met patients before who say that they get BV with one sexual contact and not with another sexual contact. So there's something very clearly going on in terms of the contribution of men to this condition. We know that the most significant risk for recurrent BV is sex with the same partner. We know that condom use consistently reduces the recurrence of BV. We know that BV is very uncommon in virginal girls. We also know that in the sub space and the distal urethra uh, we will find a number of BV associated organisms and that those organisms are more prevalent in partners of women who've got BV. We also know that uh, male circumcision reduces the recurrence rate of BV and that you can find BV associated biofilm in male urine and semen. There's a lot of data out there that points towards this being some kind of sexually transmitted situation, but exactly how it works, we're still not clear. There's also a lot of new research going on about vaginal biofilms, and biofilms in general elsewhere in the body. The vaginal biofilm is particularly resistant to treatment with antibiotics, which is part of the reason why treating recurrent BV is very challenging because we have to get our antibiotic through the biofilm to the bacteria that we want to treat, and that is difficult. There's a hypothesis that uh, BV might be initiated by sexual transmission of an adhesive type of Gardnerella vaginalis, which is then joined by other types of BV-associated bacteria in the biofilm, which then gets itself nicely established on the vaginal walls. So there's a lot of ongoing research. Um, In terms of the treatment of recurrent BV in New Zealand, this is challenging. We do not have access to vaginal metronidazole, which other countries do. And the mainstay of treatment for recurrent BV in, in, for example, the UK, is vaginal metronidazole gel on a twice-weekly basis. In New Zealand, we, we tend to use recurrent courses of metronidazole by mouth, either in the weeks version or the 2 gram STAT version and that is often challenging for people to take. There are some other options for this. There's been some work looking at boric acid in terms of its ability to disrupt the biofilm. On its own it can treat BV but it's not hugely effective. It seems to have more of a role in terms of disrupting the biofilm so that you can then actually use metronidazole to treat bacterial vaginosis that's recurrent. There are some other agents as well that are being explored in terms of biofilm disruption including something called octenidane and DNAAs and quorum sensing inhibitors which sounds very fancy and probably is and is currently under investigation. You can also use clindamycin cream in the vagina but again in New Zealand we suffer from the fact that we do not have at the moment a proprietary preparation of clindamycin. It has to be formulated and this is quite costly for patients to buy. The same should be said actually for boric acid as it's relatively speaking expensive for what it actually is. But you can't just go and buy boric acid from Mitre 10 and and put it into capsules because that's not medical grade. Um, So it gets quite challenging when you're moving into some of these alternative treatments. I should mention here that um, my practice is often to use metronidazole suppositories in the vagina. This is obviously not standard treatment, so I'm not telling people to do that, but uh, it actually does work very well because it's a much higher dose than the metronidazole gel. Um, It is reasonably acceptable to patients, although it can be a little greasy, and you can't obviously use it if you're using condoms for contraception. But that is one way to sort of get around our inability to have a metronidazole preparation for the vagina. There's ongoing research as well going into probiotics, although currently there's nothing to indicate that they're efficacious, and also some other research into the role of hormones in terms of BV, because there is some data that indicates that uh, hormonal contraception reduces the recurrence rate. So it's a matter of watching this space, I think, with recurrent BV treatment in the future, And I guess my advice to people in general practice who are trying to manage this is that it's perfectly okay to refer for specialist management or if you want to manage it yourself and you want to talk to somebody about what to do, you can contact uh, your sexual health service for either a virtual consult or a phone chat about what you might try for these women. Perfect. Thank you, Nikki. So we thought our woman
0: originally did have bacterial vaginosis, but what other causes do we need to consider?
1: Well... Uh, The causes for vaginal discharge are many and varied. Um, The main infectious causes are infections like chlamydia, gonorrhea, candidiasis. Trichomoniasis is important because that can actually look a lot like BV. It doesn't have a characteristic fishy smell, but it can have a kind of frothy discharge that can be mistaken for bacterial vaginosis. If you have a herpes cervicitis that can certainly give you a vaginal discharge but that should be really obvious on genital examination. Patients with PID will often have vaginal discharge. Very rarely you can get bacterial vaginitis for example from a streptococcal infection which gives you a really nasty vaginitis and that doesn't actually look like BV because the vaginal walls are erythematous and it's very uncommon. And there are some other causes of vaginal discharge which are not infectious. One of them is atrophic vaginitis, which of course inc- occurs in postmenopausal women, but also in women who are postpartum breastfeeding, and also in some women on progestogenic contraception, for example, the marine or the depot. Desquamative inflammatory vaginitis is a rare condition, but certainly I see a, a reasonable number of patients with this condition, and they have a mucopurulent vaginal discharge with a Um, vaginitis and they often get vulval symptoms of soreness or itching and if a foreign body is in the vagina you will get classic BV symptoms and odour but exaggerated so if there's a tampon up there or a piece of condom or a sponge or something like that you'll definitely get symptoms and signs of BV. but they won't respond to treatment until you find the foreign body and pull it out.
0: So which vaginal discharges require urgent treatment and referral to the sexual health team?
1: Yes, I was thinking about this question, and most the vast majority of vaginal discharge does not require urgent referral. If someone's got a terrible vaginitis, so really red vaginal walls, really red intratus, lots of pussy discharge, then I think that would probably warrant an urgent referral. Mm-hmm. You may wish to refer if you see someone who's got terrible herpes cervicitis, which is causing their discharge. Um, otherwise, the majority of vaginal discharge can wait until you've done the appropriate investigations. And of course, if someone's got chronic vaginal discharge or recurrent and you can't work out what's going on, then you're going to refer, but that's not an urgent situation. And
0: what patients with vaginal discharge needs partner notification and how do we do this?
1: So uh, partner notification is sounds a little bit complicated, but it's not really. I mean, the premise is effectively that for sexually transmitted infections, we want the sexual partners of people who have those infections to be seen, tested and treated. So we definitely do advise partner notification for sexual contacts of chlamydia, gonorrhea, trichomonas, PID. Uh, Obviously, patients with HIV and syphilis uh, need partner notification that's a bit more complex, but they're not likely to present with vaginal discharge. In terms of how you actually do it, you basically have a chat to your patient and say, listen, you've got this infection. Your sexual contacts are at risk of having this infection, and if we don't treat them, you will get it back. Most people really understand that easily uh, and are willing to contact their partners either by phone or by text or face to face, however they choose to do it. The trick then is to actually follow that up. Uh, so you advise them and then we would normally get one of our nurses to ring a week later and to say, "Oh, how did you get on with your partner notification? How many people did you manage to contact? Where are they going for treatment, etc." There is some information on the um, National Sexual Health Guidelines about partner notification for people who want some more information. Great,
0: thank you. And to conclude our podcast today, what would your take-home messages be for our listeners?
1: Right, well, firstly, the management of vaginal discharge requires history and examination and appropriate testing as there are many and varied causes. I think it's tempting with people who are coming back with recurrent vaginal discharge to just give them a swab and not have a look, but I think it's really important to work out exactly what's going on. So that's probably number one. Full sexual health testing, including serology, I think should be offered, unless this is a person you know has recurrent thrush and you've already done all that on their first visit. I don't think it's necessary to do it every visit, but certainly on the first visit. Self-swabbing is only appropriate for people who don't have, who are not presenting with symptoms. BV, very common. We don't treat everyone who has a positive gram stain for BV, uh, but we do treat those who are symptomatic, and recurrent BV can be very difficult to manage and often requires a specialist referral. Lovely. Thank you, Nikki. It's been a
0: pleasure talking to you today. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim CPD points for listening to this podcast, fill in the Reflection of Learning form found at goodfellowunit.org. Thank you for listening.